All right, well, welcome everyone. Please take your seats. Today we're in uh, week two of our first of three series on the law. So the fir first of, uh, sorry, the second of about eight or nine weeks on the law, uh, depending on when I get to teach this year. So last week we talked about the character and purpose of law in general. Why does God give commands? Uh, we looked at the different uses of the, of the word in the Bible for law, Torah, or nomos. Um, and we primarily looked at Psalm 19. We went a couple other places. We saw that we as human fallible creatures rely on God's revelation, and law is one of those t ways that he reveals himself to us. And we simply, at the very basic level, need to trust him. He knows what he's doing, he knows what he's saying, and we trust why he might give certain commands. We saw that truth is objective, that it instructs us about life. It isn't just arbitrary rules to go, go and do, even though it might feel like that, and we would still do them, but actually God is using his law to instruct us how to live life well and, and be satisfied. Uh, God establishes his authority. Uh, through his law, he defines what love is. What does it mean to love your neighbor? And what does it mean to sin? What does it mean to, to act uh, or think against God? His law tells us that. His law is actually an expression of his grace because we receive blessings through it and all the things I've already said. His law reflects his character as his creator and it actually reflects our character as his creatures. And so we saw that to obey God's law is to be the most human possible. And we see that at least often, if not always, it's given in some kind of a covenantal relationship. We looked at some proper attitudes towards law. We'll look at more of those today. We ought to see the commandments as good. We remember that we are not justified by the law. We don't approach it by works, but by faith, opposite of what Israel did. Uh, we want to discern God's ultimate and underlying desire in that law. And in the next series, we'll get a little more into that wrestling with moral versus other laws that uh, don't necessarily last from the Old Testament. We see that there is blessing from obedience, but it's, it's not a quid pro quo relationship. You don't obey and then get to demand of God um, what he does for you. And yet, in general, we see that a path of blessing is through obedience. We see that uh, the law, certain laws man-made laws don't necessarily get to the heart of what we need. They don't battle the indulgence of the flesh. So if your rules don't do that for you, you're missing the point. God's law does such things. And as New Testament Christians, uh, we ought to serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So next week, we're going to ask the question, is it ever okay to lie? So that should be a fun one. So come back for that as well. And in the next series, uh, we'll, we'll start talking about how do different Christians and different Christian traditions uh, in, understand the abiding nature of God's law from the Old Testament into the New? So that should be good, too. A couple things I didn't really touch. Uh, pretty much most of the content I have today, I, I've organized from content within Delighting in the Law of the Lord by Jerem Bars. I think he teaches at Covenant. Um, it's a great book. Uh, Tim loaned it to me, and, and it's, it's been a joy. He mentions some, so these are his ideas, they make sense. Uh, he would say there's, 
we gotta be careful of wrong emphases of the law. It's, it's, a, it's a big topic, it's a complex topic, it, it's probably gonna love, involve a lot of nuance, but he says watch out for these wrong emphases. He would say Lutherans, they hold to much the same view of the law as we would do in Presbyterians, but they tend to, in practice, emphasize the passive obedience and conviction over sin over active obedience and instruction in God's character. And so while they, they believe that, that God's law, even today as Christians, informs how we ought to live, they really downplay that. They are very much into law gospel distinctive, which we would agree with, but uh, Jaron Bars thinks they maybe go a little too far in uh, they're just a little too skittish of law and commands in general, and they kind of want to ru run away from that. In dispensational circles, often there's this strict opposition of law and grace, and it, it comes from their views of, of thinking that Israel is, is earning their way to God through law, and therefore we as the church, who are not Israel, are all about grace. And what's ironic is they end up making up their own rules then and become quite legalistic. Um, and so you don't want to separate law and grace in such a way, almost the opposite of Lutherans. And then in reform circles, he would say that we can tend to be too moralistic, too law-based, not gospel-centered. And so we need to be careful of that. He says there's nothing wrong with our confessions, it's just that the way maybe our, our subculture comes. So these are the types of things I want to be thinking through in this series. He says, a proper preaching of the law should teach neither pride nor despondency. Rather, it should both humble us and drive us to Christ. So, as we teach law, as Tim preaches law, as you teach it to your children, it ought to be weighty enough that it, it, it ought to humble them. We, we want to feel the conviction of our sin, and yet we don't want to be so law-based that we're turning people to their own efforts, and they're just being crushed, right? We want to drive them to Christ. That's the point. I can't do it, but Christ did. Thank God, and I have forgiveness. And so this is constant looking to the cross and wanting to live now out of gratitude for God. And also where the law is undertaught, he says, little will be made of Christ's obedience and sacrifice, and little fruit of discipleship will be found. And so in a proper gospel-centered way of, of teaching the law, um, Jesus died for a reason, Right? He went to the cross for a reason, for sins. And the more we understand the law, the true commands of God, that we can't, we can't do it. At, at the inner fiber of our being, we can't do it. We can't go an hour without sinning. That, properly understood, makes much of Christ. His sacrifice, what he's done for us, is far more important than, than oh, he, he helped me to stop smoking. Like, that's crazy. You make little of Christ if that's your level of sin and your, your obedience, your ability to, to overcome it. And so discipleship ought to be in this vein of a gospel-centeredness. So please open up to Mark 7, our main passage today. As you turn there, these are the, some of the questions we want to be asking ourselves as we go through this. Your, uh, it says Matthew, no, I mean Mark 7. I lost my battle with printing and copying this morning. So if the, your sheet is wrong, it's Mark 7. Matthew 7 would make a little sense with this topic. Matthew 6 would make more sense. Mark 7. Uh, so we want to be thinking, what does legalism look like? Why do people add to God's laws? So when I use the word legalism today, I, I don't mean earning God's favor through work, that legalism is sometimes used that. I mean 
adding to God's rules. That's what I mean by legalism today. Adding to God's rules and being so rules focused. Why do people do that? What are the problems with legalism? How can we identify legalism and how can we combat legalism? So those are the questions I ask us. Katrin, please read. All right, I'm on the mic. So Mark 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his, mother, his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you have no longer permit him, to do, permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called <clears throat> the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since so it enters not, into, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. All right, thanks. Could you also pray for us? Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much that we're able to gather here today. Um, and I just pray for the people who are also at home listening. Um, thank you that you've given uh, my dad the ability to teach people. And I just pray that uh, your word is spoken through him today. And I just pray for everyone else who's not able to be here or not be able to listen, that you'd be with them in this time. Amen. Amen. And as a reminder, I know through these COVID months and maybe years, um, there's you know, spotty attendance and, and your own ability to get here. And we're going to have interruptions on our Sunday school teacher schedule because the teacher's going to get hit with something two days before or something. So remember, we have years and years of archives of Sunday schools. So if you're sitting there at home or you just lots of time at home with time in your hands, there is so much available, even on our own website, obviously in Christian ministries throughout the world. So please avail yourself of that. If you miss a week, I encourage you to go back and catch up because... Oftentimes, they, they build on each other, and it would encourage the teachers as well to know you're doing that. All right, so first section is that first four verses. Um, so when you come to a passage about the law, one thing you need to ask yourself is, is this passage dealing with um, 
like additions to and misinterpretations of what God said, say through Moses? Or is it dealing with, hey, we're in the new covenant and things have changed. There's some kind of discontinuity between the old and the new. And so that's when is God, is the passage talking about law in general? Is it talking about the, the Mosaic law? And then what kind of critique or comment is being made on that? And that's where people disagree. In our, in our next series, when we look at Matthew 5, that's one of the key texts. Is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount correcting some of, some of the Pharisaical teachings? Or is he saying, you know, this is how it used to be in Moses, but I'm here to tell you as the new lawgiver, things have changed. And Christians disagree on those things. So that's one thing as a Bible student you want to do when you come to a text. Now, in these first four verses, it seems clear to me it's in the category of there are some actual traditions that the elders and the Pharisees have come up with that they're now expecting people to follow. It's become the norm in their culture there. If you go back to the Mosaic Law, you'll find these types of commands given to the priests and the Levites, but now it seems that they've expanded that and expected that of everybody. So it seems they're actually adding to God's law. Um, and you can imagine probably some good motives, right? You, you can guess like we want to help people. If you want to be clean, we already have a way of being clean for the pre priests, and, and I'm hypothesizing here a little bit, but you know, let's help you. Let's give you an aid to follow God's command to not be defiled, to be clean, and I'm going to kind of give you a, a little bit of a crutch and a help. You can understand some really good motives that maybe came behind all of this. Now, by the time you get down below, um, in verse 15, and it talks about what goes into a person versus what comes out of a person, he says, all foods have been declared clean. Now we might have a little bit of an indicator things are about to change. And obviously that becomes clear in the book of Acts when Peter gets his vision, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So, so what used to be forbidden in what you could eat in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we know eventually in the New Covenant is not going to be a problem. We don't obey those food laws anymore. So I don't know if Jesus in his ministry is, you know, he hasn't established yet. The Old Covenant is still in force at this point, but there's almost a hint there. So we kind of have maybe two things going on, but I think the primary thing going on here is, is an addition to what God had said. Verse 19 says, he, thus he declared all foods clean. Notice that the extra rules that are ever set up, it, it's the only way we could do it. If we ever add to God's law, those rules are by definition going to be external. We don't come up with some new law that somehow touches the heart and gives you a better attitude towards God. It's always something external. We want to see you, disciples, washing your vessels and washing your hands. It's something I can see. It's tangible. Uh, it's, it's very measurable. It's very attainable. That's what our rules that we add are always that way. Hebrews 9 says this. Um, so not only are additions to, to God's rules this way, but even the old, much of the old covenant laws were this way. Hebrews 9 says, according to the arrangement of temple worship, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So there was a, in the Old Covenant, there was a lot of stuff about food, drink, various washings, and had never touched the conscience. There's no intent to touch the conscience. That needed the Reformation. That needed the New Covenant to come. And so lots of rules can be that way. Notice that our, we talked about this last week, our whole relationship to law 
ought to be different than before. Romans 7, 6 says, But now we are released from the law, from the Mosaic law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Like I said before, Jesus didn't come to replace one written code from Moses with a new one called the law of Christ. It's, there are changes in the written code. There are changes in what God demands, perhaps. We'll look at that in the future. But our whole mentality and approach to the law to be different as new covenant believers. We're no longer following this written code. There's a new way of the spirit. There's a spiritual way. There's an internalization of the law that is taking place in at least a new and a fresh and a magnified way than before. All right, the B there, verse 5. So the Pharisees come up and ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? So as soon as you set up a standard, set up new rules that are attainable and external and measurable, immediately what's going to happen is we start dividing. All right, you're, you're, you're the one who cleans your vessels. I'm not. You're the one who watches certain types of movies. I'm not. You dress a certain way. I don't. You homeschool. I public school. We could go on and on about the ways that we divide amongst ourselves things that God has never commanded. You need to be aware of that. It's, and you, you're probably right now thinking of other people who do that. We do that. You do that. It's so natural. It, we do it all the time. That's not the way our family does such things. We add to God's law so we can set up a measure of discipleship and judge ourselves and others against it. We start to make distinctions among ourselves. James calls that an evil thing, to, to make distinctions among ourselves. And what happens is, legalism breeds pride in a judgmental spirit. It, it's hand in hand. Without, without fail, making such distinctions, holding people to them, makes you judgmental. I know I've gone through my life exercising and dieting and Man, when I'm doing good, I've lost 20 pounds. Man, I start, you guys all look fat to me. Why don't you eat better? Six months later, I'm the fat one. <laughs> it's so easy to just set up a standard and put yourself on the good side and feel good about yourself. That's legalism. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. You can detect legalism when you start keeping a record in your mind how others, someone else is doing, how they're measuring up to what is, by the way, your standard. It's not even God's standard. All right, letter C there. So this, this is maybe subtle. We might think of adding to God's laws as, I don't know if we would ever want to admit that we're helping God out or we kind of know something he doesn't, but that kind of implies that. But I just want to be clear, and Jesus is clear, that it, to, to add to God is actual counter to God. It is, it is disobedience. You, it's not just adding. It's actually um, undermining God to add to, to him. It's not, like, it's not just superfluous. Eh, we didn't need that, but okay. It, it can actually be something that actually undermines. He says, you teach his doctrines the commandments of men. Commandments of men are not the doctrines of God. To put that on the same par is great sin and has great consequences. He says, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That 
is what happens. You think you'll keep God's law. You're going to add this other rule, this other standard in some way to help the situation. What actually ends up happening is our rules always end up superseding. We, that, that becomes our standard. And we, in the commandment of God, we, we leave the commandment to God. We reject the commandment of God, he says in verse 9, in order to establish your tradition. Our traditions will always win out if we're not careful. Thus making void the word of God, your tradition that you have handed down. Romans 10, Paul says, I bear the Jews witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, if, whenever we, we are ignorant of or ignore what God has given us, we will by nature replace it with our own. And then we end up not submitting to God. That's the nature of legalism. Uh, letter D. So the, the second half of this passage, I won't read back through it again, but you see the, the internal over these versus the external nature there. So none of our attempts to, quote, improve God's law can ever get to the heart. That's the point. You can't add a rule. Um, even we'll try to look at legitimate rules, say maybe as a parent or an elder or a boss of some kind. There are legitimate authorities that God has established, and by the nature of those authorities, there are rules that you make. And that, that's the wrestling I want us to have in our question time. But realize none of those rules that you add, even when they're legitimate, can, can touch the heart. It's absolutely impossible. You, you, you can't do anything that affects the heart, which is ultimately the goal. So any legitimate rules that we do make, you think of any rule that you have in your household that's not, you know, chapter verse from the Bible. Um, what's a rule in the Bogdanovich household? Do you have rules? You're kind of a hippie. You might not have rules. I don't know. You can't eat at a certain... I don't know. <laughs> I put you on the spot. Anyone, throw, throw a rule out, a parent rule. Yeah. Well, if you're going to talk long, I need the microphone. I don't want to wrestle with it right now. I just want an example. Really? You're lying. You all have rules. When you um, give something to your child because they're being good, like you're positive. Oh, you're rewarding them. Reward. That's the word. Well, that's not the exact question, but... Are you, what, are you, what are you asking? What about? Oh, that's well, an open-ended okay, question. Okay, so if you're... I can't hear you. If you're telling your child that they don't get anything until they okay. just do something good. Okay, yeah. Um, so I guess the question, now maybe not with a two-year-old, but at some point, that kind of rule, what I want to say is, we would somehow want to tie that to God's law and to their heart. Um, I can't think offhand. We got a hand back there. You got to help me with this. No shooting darts in the house. No shooting birds in the house. Darts. Oh, no darts. darts. So what, how, how much do you tie that to God's law? I don't know. We usually just tie that back to uh, disobedience. Like we've set it as a rule, and if you violate it, it's just disobedience. Okay, so that, that is true at one level. The very establishing of your authority is an important thing. And obviously, the younger the children are, the less explanation they need, right? You could, but darts can harm people, right? You can get to love of neighbor pretty easily. And so, you know, even when we have rules, particularly as children grow, you want to start tying those rules 
to God's actual law. And eventually, you don't need those extras, right? Eventually, those extra rules, those parental rules, ought to go away. Um, And ultimately, like to tie it to their hearts, like, do you just care about yourself? Do you not care about anybody else here? All right, we'll, we'll talk more about that. All right, E. Uh, okay, a little outside this text now. If with Christ you died to the elementary, spirits, elementary spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. See these external, measurable types of things? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So legalism has an appearance of wisdom. It's one reason we do it. It seems wise. It seems good to come up with a bunch of rules. But actually, it's worldly. These are things of the world. They, They don't have any value any true, lasting, internal value. And this is the irony. Legalists look like the most religious people in the world. The Pharisees, you know, they were awesome. They were the role models, your religious role models. And yet, the very thing that made them religious role models was worldliness. They were actually further from God than those who didn't keep all the rules. We see that when the two come to the temple to pray, right? the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. So we, we, we put this self-man-made religious edifice around us and these rules, and, and we have a reputation, and we feel good because we're keeping things, and we're keeping things better than them, and we're, we're put on a pedestal. And it's all worldliness. It's all emptiness. It's vanity. It's absolutely the opposite of what we want, the opposite of being gospel-centered. Colossians 3 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, this verse obviously is more than just a bunch of oppressive rules, but I think it includes that. That's something I know we have failed at, and we try to keep in, keep in mind, like, get to know your children. How far do you press them? Like, okay, it's a rule in the house, but are you going to destroy your relationship over a rule that you came up with? Even, that, even though it was legitimate, you're in a legitimate authority. How far are you going to press this? Again, your goal is that child's heart. It's not pharisaical obedience to you. You might think, I've got to get them to do what I want. It really becomes about me, and, and your legitimate authority becomes illegitimate versus focused on them at all times. How can I get this child to love God, to be broken for their sin? I've, I've thought of this when I was a boss in the military about how harsh I am with people. You kind of got to get to know their demeanor. It's, it's not about just, well, I guess in the military, it could be about towing the line. There's a time for that. But in the church, in the family, we don't operate that way. We don't, that, that's not who we are. We're after hearts. Legalism can drive people to discouragement and despair. And you probably know people like this. Eventually what happens is it's so burdensome, it's so oppressive, they just break and they become totally anti-law. I've seen people raised in a, in a rigid home, skirts and everything, no makeup, like perfect family in some circles. Man, when those, those children leave the nest, they just fly. They just turn from everything. They discard everything, all the good and the bad that they were raised with. That's not what we want. 
Also in Colossians 3, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Because our rules are external and measurable and attainable, it's so easy to be a hypocrite. It's so easy to make it look like you're keeping them, but, you know, not do them in secret. It's so easy. It, it, you're, it's pure hypocrisy. You're, just, you're, do, you're performing for people. When people are looking, you're performing. You're making it look good. This edifice, I see that a lot about Mormons that I've known. Man, there's so much in their life that, that, that look good. And I hate to point the finger outward because I need to point it in. But, man, you get, it, you get inside, you're like, wow, there's some real rot inside here that you can't see. It's whitewashed tombs in the end. So beware of hypocrisy. Only gospel-centeredness, only keeping to the heart of the matter, God's true law will, will keep us humble and crying out for mercy because we know we can't keep it. Some long passages I don't have the time to read in a G there, Galatians 3 and Hebrews 5. We talked about this, the law is our guardian until Christ came, but now faith has come. We're not under a guardian. Our relationship to God has changed. He's kind of using Israel the old covenant coming to the new, but I think we can see this in individual Christian lives as well, that we're, we're, we're enslaved to the things of the world. But then coming to Christ, um, is, and we become sons of God, we, we be, we're adopted. That's a new relationship, and, and that ought to feel new. And so these regimented rules that, the, that Israel was under in the old covenant, and what your children might be under, that's appropriate for childhood. But when you grow to maturity, when the fullness of time has come, that's not appropriate anymore. The, this, this level of detail and, and rules that aren't really at the heart of what God wants. You know, there, there's a moral law that's kind of enshrouded by these, these other things in the Old Testament. But now we're in the, in the New Covenant, and as just Christians living by the Spirit, there's a big change. Again, we'll talk about how much that change should look like, but there's a huge change now. A whole relationship there. And even rebukes them in Galatians 4. You, you used to be this way, and now you're turning back to them. Those elementary principles of the world, he calls them. Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have made, labored over you in vain. This is a frightening thing to see a 30-year-old treated like or acting like a 5-year-old. That's a horrible thing. It's an unnatural thing. But that, we do that. When, you, when we are adding laws in the church and, and to our fellow Christians, when we're expecting a standard that God has not established, we're treating them like children. We're stunting their growth. Hebrews 5, same thing. You become dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers, but someone needs to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. If you're living on man-made rules, you're unskilled in the word of righteousness and you're a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there it is. You're after the heart. You're, you're after a level of maturity. You've got, you've got the end goal in mind. Say, I keep going back to parenting. You can put this in all sorts of authority relationships. So it's not about how they are as a two-year-old and a three-year-old. You're kind of focused there. But you're thinking, wow, when they're 18, they're going to leave this home. How am I getting them there? I can't just give them all that now, right? I, it's going to be baby steps. I'm going, to, I'm going to be mentoring them along the way at different stages. But that's my old, ultimate goal. Don't lose sight of that goal of what you're doing as a parent. 
Legalism can sound like maturity. Oh, I'm doing all these nice, good things. It sounds mature to, man, I know I'm a spirit-filled Christian, like as, as if you could be a Christian, not spirit-filled. Like I'm, a, I'm doing even better. It sounds mature. It sounds like you've progressed, but you haven't. You've actually stunted your growth. We breed a dependence on fleshy rules like a young child. And again, rules ought to make us more fully human. And so there is a place in your parenting and in your authority, uh, authority at work, government, uh, the, the session, the elders here, just, just throw out commands. Does it make sense? Treat us as human beings, as mature people. Tell us why. Right? There should never be, it, otherwise it comes off as arbitrary. It starts to oppress. You don't feel human. You're, again, you're not, you're not developing maturity. There ought to be some explanation. And by the way, none of our authority is ultimate. We ought to always be able to justify what we say to our ultimate authority. We all always better be able to point to God and explain why we're making a certain decision for a certain rule. Okay, I want to get to these questions. So what place do social norms have in being gospel-centered? So if you think about it, social norms are kind of like unwritten rules. <laughs> They're kind of like the unwritten expectations um, in society or in any little small group. There's a kind of way of practicing, a way of talking that's kind of expected. And obviously, if you had no social norms, you'd have utter chaos. There'd be no way to relate to people. I'm not saying social norms are bad, but think about it. Think about Jesus going, talking to the woman at the well. Talking to a woman anyway, talking to a Samaritan woman, talking to an adulteress, that would have been shocking. How about eating with the Gentiles and tax collectors? Having Zacchaeus into his home? People talked about him. What is this guy doing? Does he not know who this is he's eating with? Think about the woman who washed his feet with her hair, anointed his feet. Scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. I mean, lurid. Like, that's not good for a religious man to be, to be doing. The social norms that Jesus was willing to break, um, but obviously he just didn't do it haphazardly. He didn't do it just because to be radical, man. I just want to be different. I don't want to be part of this world. He had very gospel-driven purposes, and, and he was very purposeful in breaking social norms. So consider that. When, I'm going to go through all these and then open it up for whichever one you want to answer. When is it right in our own evangelism and discipleship and living out the Christian life to not only not worry about social norms, but perhaps very intentionally break them in a highlighted way? Think about the command to show hospitality and to evangelize. You're going to have to have people in your home who you are not comfortable with. You're not comfortable with your parents, your children being with, if you're really going to reach this world. The second one there is how do we balance legitimate rulemaking, elders, parents, teachers, whatever, with God's laws? So I'm, I'm railing against adding to God's laws, right? But we all have legitimate authorities where we do make rules. Um, and so how do you balance that? Well, that's where I want to wrestle with that. Like, um, here's one that we've started to enforce in our home. It's, it's ironic because we, have, we cared more about this rule as the children got older, not young, you know, younger. We don't let, when we have sleepovers, we don't let the men and the women sleep together. Imagine that. <laughs> I didn't think about it when my children were eight. Turners and Reddicks are just in one big pile on the floor. <laughs> you couldn't separate who was who, right? Well, they got older, we're kind of aware of things, you know, we're going to make it a rule. We try to be a very gospel-centered home. We try not to add rules. 
we don't have any problems with this rule. Is that legitimate for us? Is that, is that something that's good? How do I justify that after the lesson I've just been teaching? That, you know, girls are going to be upstairs, boys are going to be downstairs tonight. We want to make sure that our rules point to God's grace and to true righteousness and not cultural righteousness. You don't just, well, this is how things are. No. It, God has a standard. We want to point what our rules are to that. And make sure when you're disciplining for a disobedience to rules, it's out of that heart of, of love and respect for God's rule, not your own. And lastly, how does, how does this affect, affect our evangelism? He's got, he's got, I don't know how much this affects our church, but I've been in cultures like this for sure. So they're doing an outreach as a church um, in their community. He's in the South. And another church wants to join with them. It's a swimming party. And the other church comes and says, hey, we want to join you, but we got to have the rule, only one-piece bathing suits. And he's like, no point in having it then. Because none of my f- kids' friends will come if they can't. All they have is bikinis. So are you going to enforce that rule? Remember the beginning here. There's a legitimate concern, right? To have one-piece bathing suits. There's a legitimate concern. A legitimate biblical concern about modesty and lust. So how do you balance that? Like, okay, but now I'm going to lose my effectiveness to go out. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to reach the world and communicate with them. You can see some of the sticky situations you can get in like, oh, where is that line? Is this a rule? Well, not technically, but I have a principle I'm concerned about. And obviously, they didn't invite the other church because they wanted to have the event. We can develop a self-preservation and self-purity over an outward love of sinners. That's important. We, We can set up these rules, and maybe for good intentions. We have these principles. We care about purity. We we care about, you know, not being defiled by the world. But we end up setting up a hedge so much so that we're useless to the world. How do we go love sinners if we're not kind of at risk of being impure in an external sense? Like, and again, I I remember a missionary who was going to go to the red light district in Amsterdam where, you know, nudity, prostitution is on full display. And churches say, what? You can't go there. You're going to fill your mind. You're a young man. (laughs) How are they going to have Christ? You know, how do you do that? Maybe one guy is appropriate to go and one, another type of person with their weaknesses isn't. I don't know. But these are real issues we need, we need to wrestle with. Well, you know, question in some of your homes. Do you force your unsaved children, your unsaved teenagers, say, to go to family worship, to come to church? Do you drag them kicking and screaming? You either come to church or you're out of my house. I mean, when is that an appropriate command? I don't, I don't know. You've got to wrestle with these things. Like, are you helping their heart by dragging them? Maybe you are. I, I, I'm not trying to presuppose an answer, but these, are, these can be some tough questions. So I did not leave you much time, but um, which of those do you want to address? Uh, microphone? One of the uh, things that we saw in our early marriage was the uh, shibboleth amongst evangelicals that it was against God's law to drink alcohol. So teetotaling was rampant. And it almost, I mean, it was really weird how hard it was for me and Terry to get past that. 
because that was almost like uh, a clear sign of, of uh, you can't possibly love Jesus if you have a glass of wine. Mm. And I'll add one more. And the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. So clear. One time we had some vis visitors at Spring Meadows, and I don't know how I got off on this rant, but I was <laughs> talking about how the stoplight system in this town encouraged us to speed. So I was telling her, you gotta speed. And she was aghast that I was speeding because that is a sin. So oh some people, I mean, they think what the civil magistrates demands, if you don't do it, it's a sin, so. All right, thanks. What else? Leah's not here. I didn't call her last week. I was going to give her a special chance. What else? That's not enough discussion. Any, any specific area that you've struggled with in your own mind? Oh, come on. I could have talked more. Um, I, I, I'd rather get a deeper level, but I'll take the issue of the wine. So I made a decision pretty early on. When I, I, was, I became a Christian at 18, uh, a year later I was in college, had a great fellowship, and then I'm going to become a pilot, and the pilot world was seen as a pretty debaucherous place, the fighter pilot world, and um, so a lot of friends were talking about how are you going to handle this because it's they don't just have a wine at, at mill it's like it's drunkenness it's and it, it comes with lots of things we cleaned it up some but um, and we had that talk and I remember thinking as a young Christian well if I ever get stationed in the south I won't drink because I think that would be better for my witness because I don't want people questioning I say I'm a Christian and then they see me drink and they're wrong but they would associate the two and I don't want that Thankfully, by the time I moved to the South, I changed my views, and I drank. Because I was very much moved by Romans 14. The kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. And so if I'm, if I'm teetotaling for the sake of that's my righteousness before God, I'm actually distracting them from the gospel. I want to be the guy that preaches about Jesus through the week, and then they see me at the bar drinking and not getting drunk and asking them about their lives and caring about them and their families. That was the distinction that was missing in my squadrons. So that was my attempt. I did not always succeed. Um, that was how I dealt with it. I, I understand the, the idea of going the other way. I, I just, you gotta check your motives, right? And, and, and check your, your ability to reach others. That, that has to be part of your motive. How am I, you know, Paul sometimes, um, submitted to the circumcision and sometimes didn't. As we go through Acts, we're seeing that. He looked at each context differently. How, what is the best for the gospel? Yeah. Okay, this will be the last one. Uh, one topic that we've had in our house just randomly recently was about birth control and whether or not it's right to use birth control if it's just God's will, whether or not you should have children. I think that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good Sunday school. Again, so let's take that as a topic, though. Do you, how do you deal with a practical question like that, right? You want to run to the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? 
And then you want to, don't just do that. Don't say, well, there's nothing here. So what is your motivation, right? What's your motive? Are you, are you turning away from God's blessing on your family? Do you hate children? Do you love the comfort of your life? Well, it doesn't matter what you believe on birth control. Those are pretty bad motivations, right? And hard attitudes, which we've all had, by the way. We don't, haven't always loved our children equally, if we're honest. Um, but then if you, if you believe that's in God's law, then obviously you submit to it. Even if you, you know, if you, if you, were, if you were convinced that the Bible taught no birth control, and you see your, your life in wreck, I'm, I'm impoverished, I, I don't know how I'll ever make it. And yet if that is, really would be God's law, there's a trust issue there, right? Um, but it's not an easy, this is not some classroom ivory tower discussion where we can just talk about the problems of the world. That's something that really affects you. Um, to submit to God's rules um, when it really has huge impacts on your life. That, that's a huge faith issue. All right. Next week, is it ever okay to lie? That's the question. So if any of you husbands have ever been asked, does this dress make me look fat? Or how's my casserole? Hmm, we'll have some answers for you. We'll try to be a little more serious about, you know, the Nazis come to your door and ask if you're hiding Jews in the basement. What do you say then? That, that's what we want to deal with next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this wouldn't just be a fun little exercise. We pray that looking at your word, considering real questions of life, that you would transform our hearts into the image of your son. Help us not to be conformed to this world. Help us not to chase the social norms and the acceptance of men for the sake of themselves. Help us to follow norms or break them for the sake of the gospel. Help us to be wise. Help, help us not to just, just jettison any concern for our own purity, for our own weaknesses of the flesh. Um, with some uh, wrong-headedness uh, of boldness. So, so help us to, to balance these things. Help, uh, help those who are parents here to know how to parent their ch children's hearts, to shepherd them to maturity and to obedience to you, not to them. What a blessing we have to have good parents uh, and good bosses and good elders and where authority is used rightly. Uh, we pray that that would be a help and an aid to submitting to you, to worshiping you, to loving you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus transforms hearts and minds. Thank you for being on this side of the cross where we can live in the new way of the Spirit and not be uh, burdened with a bunch of rules. Help us not to be so rules-minded, uh, but spirit-minded and fruit-minded and gospel-centered. We know only you can do this, Father. We can't come up with a quick list of, of how to accomplish this in our lives. Help us to hold each other accountable to such things. And we pray for the worship service, for the music team, for Dan and his preaching. We pray that we, our hearts will be drawn to you this morning, this Lord's Day. Again, we pray for all those who are at home, unable to be with us. Keep us healthy in these COVID days. Help us to be wise. Help the elders to be wise in, in where they draw that line specifically. Um, and help us to have some charity and how we consider differences on that matter. And may the world be seen, our, our response, be it very conservative, be uh, very liberal with this. May, may they see us as, as lovers of Jesus. Um, 
and emboldened by the gospel. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.